he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his, to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? I don't think they were very happy about that. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but who? Sinners. Sinners to repentance. Father, thank you for the way this text is just soaked through with grace. I pray you would help me to communicate this message of grace to all that are here. I pray, Lord, for those who already know you, that they would leave with their hearts swollen with more gratitude that you have called them out of darkness unto light. And Father, for anyone here who's never turned to Jesus Christ, I pray that they would experience that Lazarian call, that you would summon them to faith in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I need your help. I've prepared as hard as I know how, but unless you blow on my notes, it's nothing but chicken scratch. So, Lord, please move in power, glorify your name, save your people, and grow your church. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you can grab a seat. Grace. Grace is one of, if not perhaps the most beautiful word in all the Christian vocabulary, grace is. It's a rich word. It's a beautiful word. It occurs about 131 times in your Bible. We sing about grace. We pray about grace. We talk about grace. I'm betting that some of you could give me some great definitions of grace. In fact, let's just do that. Give me a few definitions of grace as you, as you have learned it. Yeah, unmerited favor. And somebody even want to build on that definition? Unmerited favor to ill-deserving sinners. That's one definition, but I believe that there's some others out here as well. How about the acronym grace? You ever heard that one? God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace. Now, we could go on and on and on, but grace is a beautiful thing. It's what distinguishes Christianity from every other religion. Now, here's the sad and sobering reality. Is it not true that grace often loses its edge in, in our hearts, right? We don't get so amazed about grace, hey? Grace loses its, its zing in our thinking. So it's not amazing grace, it's ho-hum grace. And that's why in our Christian lives, we need grace to hit us afresh again and again. We need grace to hit us differently, do we not? And this is super important, family, because grace is the very thing that stirs us up and motivates us, 
and empowers us to live the life that God wants us to live as Christ followers in every place and sphere and role of life that God has placed us. Whether you're a teen or a single or a married or a mother or a father, a husband, a wife, a worker, a student, and, and, and everything else. You need grace to walk out your calling as a Christian in those places. Don't you? And I, and I believe that when we, live, when we live in those places less than God wants us to live, it's ultimately because grace has lost its place in your heart, in your mind. Did not Jesus say to the Apostle Paul, you could probably finish this for me once I start it, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect, or he might say displayed in your weakness, he said to Paul. Does not James say, God resists the, but gives grace to the humble? Did not Paul write in Titus 2 that the grace of God has appeared, teaching us that we ought to deny ungodliness, worldly lust, and a whole bunch of other stuff, and that we should live soberly and righteously in this present age. That's not guilt that drives that, that's grace. And I could go on and on and on, but that's why I'm so excited about today's passage, this short but grace-soaked passage. Now, technically, you, you, you heard it read, the word grace does not actually appear in our text. Did anybody see the word grace? No. But, what you will find in real-time action is two super encouraging, super hopeful, super helpful facets of grace. Namely, how it is someone even comes to Jesus, how they receive the gospel, how they find the power to do that when we're dead in sins, okay? How we come to Jesus. And the other one is who this gospel is is for not the righteous, but sinners. So I want to preach to you this morning on this. Jesus calls sinners. Jesus calls sinners. And that short three-word title for this message actually will be each of the two sub-points I will make. I will simply have a different emphasis with each time I repeat the title. First of all, we're going to see Jesus calls there's the emphasis, sinners. And then second of all, we're gonna see Jesus calls sinners. There's the emphasis. And each of these two points have, I believe, um, weighty theological uh, truths embedded in them, okay? But also, we're just not just doing theology for the sake of doing theology. Each of them contain super practical shoe leather level application for your everyday life. So y'all with me? What's the title of this message? What are the points for the message? And Jesus calls sinners. All right, so let's go with the first one. Jesus calls sinner. Now, you might see in your notes the expression irresistible grace, okay? We'll, we'll circle back to that, but I just wanna note that. This is born out of verse nine, which says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man 
called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. He said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Now some people in either teaching or preaching on Matthew chapter nine, verse nine, the, the, the verse I just read, like to emphasize the response of Matthew to the call. What does he do? He gets out of his tax booth and he rises up and follows. And while we will certainly unpack his response as, a, as an expression of what true saving faith looks like, I actually think the primary emphasis isn't on the response, but it's on the call of Jesus when he says, follow me. I say that on the basis of the second part of our text, but I say that more, more just what, what, what Matthew's been trying to do in the last two chapters. We entered a new section, uh, I think it was, was it Pastor Nick or, or Pastor Charles that kicked it off, beginning of Matthew chapter eight, it's called the King's Power. And in these two chapters, what Matthew was trying to show is Jesus flexing his power. So, Matthew chapter eight kicks off, there's a guy with a leper. Oil of a lay can't fix leprosy, right? It's a nasty disease. The leper says, if you will, if you, if, you, if you want to, you can make me clean. Jesus touches him, and what happens immediately? Woo! The man is clear of leprosy. Immediately, the leprosy takes off. Then you go on down the text a little farther, and Peter's mother-in-law is staying at Peter's, Peter's house. She's in sickbed because she has a terrible fever. Jesus touches this fever-wracked mother-in-law, and what happens to that fever? It's gone, rebuked, and immediately, not only is the leper cleansed, this fevered lady is healed. Keep on walking down the text of these chapters, and you come across a storm, a tumultuous storm on the Sea of Galilee. I mean, just a terrible storm. Jesus is having a little catnap. He's not worried about it. The guys wake him up, and with one word in the Greek, he says, be muzzled, and immediately that tumultuous sea becomes a serene lake of glass. He's, 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 he's flexing his power, right? And then we, I, I, I think I, I preached this a few weeks ago. You have these demons. How many of them? A legion, four to 6,000 demons inside just two men. Demon possession does happen. And Jesus, with one word, says, go, and all of a sudden you had a whole lot of deviled ham as those pigs went to their watery death indwelt by those demons. And then last week, Pastor Charles preached on Jesus talk, telling a man who's paralyzed, he can't move, laying on a little pallet, and he says, man, take your pallet, stand up, rise, and walk away. And what happens? Just like that, the man does that. So would you agree with me that Jesus has been flexing his power in these chapters. We've been learning the king has power. I think we need to understand that then as we come to verse nine. In verse nine, Matthew gets very personal. You know, this is Matthew, the, the guy that's being spoken of, is the writer of this very book, the Gospel of Matthew. Now, maybe out of a sense of humility or just, just trying to keep things online, he, he writes in the third person. And writing in the third person, he, he gets very personal about Jesus has flexed his power in his life so that he could even follow Jesus. And I just got to tell you, if you are a Christian, if you're a Christian, you're a Christian because what happened to Matthew on that day so many years ago happened to you. 
And if this does not happen to you, you will not follow Jesus. But praise God, it could happen even today if it hasn't happened yet. Speaking in the third person, let me just read this verse again. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew, the writer of this book. Matthew speaking of himself in the third person. He's sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And then Matthew immediately rose up and followed him. That's amazing, but I don't think you think that's so amazing yet, do you? So let's dive into context a little bit. If you were to go to the Gospel of Mark, Mark gives us a few more details about this event, about this episode. And Mark tells us that people are just flocking to Jesus in droves, like the paparazzi after him. Jesus is literally being mobbed by all kinds of people expressing all kinds of various levels of interest in him that would provoke them to even go to him. What's Matthew doing here? What's Matthew doing? Matthew, well, he's just sitting at the tax booth doing the tax collecting thing. And by the way, it's not like Matthew's never heard of Jesus. Jesus had an earlier ministry tour through Capernaum. So no doubt, Matthew had some level of exposure to Jesus, perhaps even appeals by Jesus to him. We can only surmise that. But he knew of Jesus. But evidently, this guy who one commentator called the ancient equivalent of a Wall Street workaholic and a lot more, he's actually like a mafia member. We'll get to that second point. He's not too interested, is he? He is not concerned about coming to Jesus. He's concerned about getting his money, this tax collector. In other words, the point I'm trying to make is this. Nothing in this text, in Matthew's account, in Mark's account, in Luke's account, tells us that this tax collector is the least bit interested or curious in Jesus. Nothing, nothing. No, he's just sitting at his tax booth again, right? I keep emphasizing that because that's what he's doing. He's sitting at his tax booth more concerned about collecting cash than he is curious about Jesus. He's not curious at all. Now, hopefully this begins to paint the picture. Scores of people mobbing to Jesus, right? One guy in the background, a tax collector collecting taxes, is not doing that. And yet, with all the people coming to Jesus, all the people expressing some level of interest, whether saving or not, Jesus calls one singular man who is decidedly disinterested. Right? Do you see that? Stay with me. (laughs) And what does Matthew do? What does Matthew do? Matthew rises up and follows him. Now just on the, listen, just on the natural level, moms, dads, have you ever had to be somewhere, say church, and you shout down the hallway or up the stairs, hey kids, we're leaving. And maybe 47, seven minutes later, they come, they might say, yes, I'm coming, but there's a delay, they gotta do this and all that. And we do the same thing, adults, right? There is delay, there's delay. Is there any delay when Jesus says to Matthew the tax collector, follow me, is there any delay? There's none, none whatsoever. He says, follow me, and he rose up and followed him. That's exactly what he did. 
This is quite remarkable. In a snap, a disinterested man drops everything to follow Jesus. Do you see that? And I think this illustrates something that's called the the eye in tulip. There's total depravity, there's an unconditional election, there's limited atonement, there's irresistible grace, and there's perseverance of the saints. This is irresistible grace right here, I think. Or what some people call the effectual call. The effectual call. But I'm sure for somebody here, you heard tulip, you heard irresistible grace, you heard effectual call, and, and, and maybe there's some baggage that, that gets in the way of, of, of really receiving that. You might be saying, I thought everyone was called to Christ. Is everyone called to Christ, yes or no? Yes. There is a general call that goes out indiscriminately to all and anyone. And then, however, there is a specific call, an effectual call that goes out powerfully to the elect. You ever come across the uh, Christian website, Got Questions? Got Questions really frames this nicely, and so I I take from this website. This is how the Got Questions marries up the two. The general call is for all of humanity. The famous passage, John 3.16, portrays God's general call to everyone in the world. What's John 3, 16, family? That he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Is that a sincere offer of the gospel, yes or no? Yes. Many people come to faith through John three sixteen, But he goes on to say, or whoever she is or he is that's behind got questions, probably a, a team of people, The gospel is available to everyone, but because of humanity's sinful nature and total depravity, no one ever turns to God without God first impressing himself on them. And that, my friends, is what he's talking, what we're talking about with irresistible grace or the effectual call. And you know that that is all over scripture. Once you have eyes to see that, it just pops out at you. Romans 8, verse 30 Moreover, those he did also predestinate, he also called. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 22 through 24, for the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we, we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, there it is, Christ the wisdom of God and the power of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, there's the imagery of light going, coming into darkness. It says, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, how in the face of Jesus Christ. We will see in a few months, Matthew 22, verse 14, Jesus said, many are invited, but few are chosen. Or how about this? He goes to see Lazarus. This is an illustration of that. Lazarus is in the grave how many days? Four days. Probably pushing maggots, right? Jesus comes to him and says, Lazarus, come forth. And bam, he comes out of his grave and grave clothes. And I love this. Acts chapter 16, Lydia, a seller of purple. She's at the riverside, 
Paul is preaching, and the scripture says, and the Lord opened their heart to receive the things that he was preaching. It's all over scripture, it's all over. That is my story, and I say to you, if you real, whether you realize it or not, that's your story. In my Marine Corps unit, a couple guys who were Christians who were sharing the gospel here and there, why, why did I have ears to hear? Was it because I was more spiritual than them? <laughs> Trust me, it was not. Was it because I was smarter than them? You already know the answer to that one. Was it because I was more steadfast or more sincere? No, no, and no. It was owing entirely to the grace of the effectual call. That as I heard the general call, the Spirit of God did something special in my heart so that I would see my sin and run to the Savior. And if you're a Christian, that happened to you. Whether you got converted soundly at age six or 16 or 60, that's what's gotta happen and that means that in the fireplace of our hearts where we're supposed to be full of gratitude, there's no shortage of logs to throw in there, the log of gratitude that you called me, Lord, out of darkness unto light. We should be able to say, Lord, thank you for flexing your power to make me a dead man, a dead woman alive. We should be able to say, Lord, thank you for flexing your power to make for me a blind person to see the light of the gospel. We should be able to say, Lord, thank you for making me a spiritually deaf person, have ears to hear your call to come home to Christ. We should praise the Lord for saying, thank you for taking me a disinterested person sitting at the tax booth of my life to to stop everything and follow you. We should praise him for that. So I just wanna ask you, has that happened to you? Have you been called in that kind of way? And you'd say, well, how would I know if I have? You get a telegraph from heaven. No, this is how you know. You know because you respond to the gospel. You respond to the gospel. Now, hold on. I think there's a lot of people, and I'm not thinking anybody in particular here, I'm just saying in, in America, who think that they've responded to the gospel, but they've not. I, I really believe that. The scripture tells us that. You listen to people. I, here's three litmus tests for really responding to the gospel that we see in the life of Matthew. First of all, what does Matthew do? What does Matthew do? You don't need no Greek for this, it's right there in front of you. What does he do? He does what? He follows, that's it, he follows. He literally follows Jesus. And by the way, Matthew will fall away all the way to the doggone end because he is martyred for the faith. I'd say he followed. Are seasonal friends real friends? You ever had a seasonal friend? But man, they weren't really there. Are seasonal Christians real Christians? No. I mean, we ebb and flow and all that stuff, we all do. We all massively mess up. So don't hear me saying, oh, we just live the life of perfection, of course not. But at the end of the day, a true person who has received, a person who's truly received the gospel will follow, right? Jesus himself teaches that when he says, he that endures to the end shall be saved. This is the P into the perseverance of the saints. You keep persevering. And really it's because of the perseverance of the Savior inside you. So first of all, he follows. 
But second of all, if we went to Luke chapter five, verse 28, we would see that he not only followed, he left everything. He left everything, man. Luke 5, 28. Now, this doesn't mean you leave your God-given responsibilities and commitments as a man, as a woman, et cetera. That's not what we're saying. But it means you leave your own lordship, huh? Which means then you hopefully are turning from sin more and more and turning from fallen viewpoints that don't square up with Scripture. He left it all. He followed, he left it all, and I love this. I love this. Luke 5, 29. This tax collector throws a party. Guess who he invites to the party? Guess who he invites? He probably, maybe it's a catered deal. I mean, just nice food, nice drink, and the whole night. But he invites Jesus, and he invites tax collectors. And sometimes I wonder if he went down his roster of taxes and invited people that he had extorted from. But here's the point. True faith not only follows, true faith not only leaves things behind, increasingly so, true faith wants to see your friends come to Christ, right? Like if you really believe that you have the only cure to the affliction of sin, to the punishment of hell, to eternal life and eternal joy, and you got somebody you say you love, but you're not trying to get them to Jesus, you either don't love them or you don't love Jesus. But the two can't go together, right? One of the biggest mistakes people make is trusting in a dead prayer in the past rather than a living savior in the present. And I'm just telling you, family, a lot of people think that they've taken the cure when they've imbibed a placebo that is greasing their skid to hell. So my question is, are you following Jesus? Are you leaving stuff behind? And God's always revealing more stuff, right? If he revealed everything right the moment we got saved, we just wouldn't be able to stand. But are you leaving stuff behind? And even in a fumbling, bumbly, I don't know how to do this way, are you trying to get your friends to Jesus? Now, I'll close out this first point, and I'll have to race for the second one, by saying this verse should encourage us that there is no case too hard for God. No case too hard for God. See, we, I think we often do what the Pharisees do, did, do. Is we, they sized up other people's savability. Do you ever do that? Well, that person would never come to Jesus. Do you, know, do you know what they believe? Do you know what they do? See, here, here's the deal. The effectual call of God is unstoppable. And it comes through the general call that you and I are responsible to give. So here's what we are to do. We're to give the gospel to whoever we can, however they look because God does really good work. I'm so gra- glad that Brian Roberts, Jack Murphy, Susan remembers them, were, didn't size me up and say, that dude, no, he will never respond. I won't, but God in me stirred my heart to respond. 
and they faithfully gave the gospel. So first of all, what's, what's the first point? Jesus, say it loud, calls sinners. Now second of all, Jesus calls sinners. I love the emphasis of this point. We saw the specific laser beam focus of effectual or irresistible grace in bringing somebody to Christ. Now this is one more broadly, the, just the message of grace, the gospel of grace. You see, the Pharisees, verses 10 and 11, are blown away that Jesus Christ is hanging out with sinners like tax collectors. And when I say blown away, it's not in a good way, right? Look at, look at what they murmur. As Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his, to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Again, they're not too happy with this. Now, tax collectors were really hated cats. I mean, and, and, and by the way, I mean, kind of rightly so. Do you know what these tax collectors were? <laughs> no, not quite, but that on steroids and with a lot of deception. So what I mean is this. We often think of these tax collectors as basically, basically ancient equivalents of, of, of IRS workers, right? Now, you might not be crazy about the IRS, but, you know, they work for the government, and, and there is a law that they're following whether you like it or not. That wasn't their deal. To become a tax collector, you would bid, as it were, for franchise rights from the occupying Roman force. And if you won the bid, you had their, their, their muscle behind you to raise taxes in that region of, of Palestine. And as long as you gave the Romans their cut, they didn't care how much more you took above and beyond that. After all, a guy's got to make his living and then some. And so what they would do is they would, they, at every whim, according to their whim, they could size somebody up and take whatever they wanted. There was no chart to say, well, you take this from this person and this from this. they just take whatever they wanted. And there was no right of appeal, no way to say, hey, this isn't right. Nobody they could appeal to these, these Jewish uh, citizens who were being overtaxed because the tax collector had the heavy, barbaric hand of the Roman soldiers behind them. In other words, these guys were just basically mafia guys. They were extortionists. They were politically unacceptable because they collaborated, collaborated with Rome. They were morally unacceptable. They would use their illicit earnings to fund a very immoral lifestyle quite often. They were religiously unacceptable. They were banned from ever appearing at the synagogue. And they were socially unacceptable. Jews were forbidden to have them in their homes. Now, don't feel bad about these guys, okay? Because they, they chose this willingly. Like they wanted it for the money, which made them all the more disdained. So it's no wonder then these Pharisees lumped them in with like red district sinners, you know, murderers and prostitutes and all the rest. And the Pharisees then objected to Jesus sharing a meal with them because it seemed that he was now approving their lifestyle, right? You're hanging out with them, you're having a meal with them, you obviously think it's cool or at least you're okay with what they're doing. And I say to you, and this is very important, they bought in. Now listen to me, this is really important. They bought into the fallen religious script that every religion 
outside of Christianity buys. It goes like this. Clean yourself up, and then you can come to God. That's what human religion says. Clean yourself up, and then maybe you can come to God, and maybe he'll accept you. Jesus Christ and the gospel of grace, praise God, flips that script squarely on its head. You come to Jesus, and he cleans you up. Doesn't that mean anything to you? You come to Jesus, and he's the one that cleans you up. The Pharisees insulted Jesus. This man hangs with sinners. This man receives sinners. You know what? They were right. That's exactly what he did. Yes, he did. He didn't join them in their sinning, but he did spend time with them. And Jesus makes this point in very three, in three ways. And, and, I, and let, let, me, let me just stop here real quick. We just had a conference, right? Speaking against fallen ideologies, right? One of my concerns out of that, and I was so glad to hear that people said, yes, the messages were strong and prophetic, but they also held out the gospel, held out grace, and called people to hope. My concern was this. And it still is anytime you speak against air, that you not only speak against air, but then you begin to see people who embrace that as enemies. And the Bible says all of us were enemies to God, right? So as we speak out against fallen ideologies, we nonetheless reach out to people who've imbibed that with grace and mercy, right? Just like Jesus did with us. Otherwise, we're just going to be another reflection of Pharisees, and we don't want to be that, do we? Jesus flips that script on its head. He's, there's an argument from logic, one commentator put it, an argue, argument from Scripture, and an argument from authority. Number one, the argument from logic, and why first you come to Jesus, and then he cleans you up based on what he did on the cross. Look at verse 12. When he heard it, Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Here's the logic, it's very clear. Just as a medical doctor ministers to the physically sick, Jesus is saying, I came to minister to the spiritually sick. That's why I'm hanging out with them. Is Jesus saying that the Pharisees are not sick and sinful? Is he saying that? No. But he is making the point that he came to deal with people who know that they're sinners, right? And if you pressed on them, they knew. And I have to say, sin, that is unforgiven sin, not only keeps people out of heaven, so does self-righteousness in the most literal way. That's why fallen human religion takes more people to hell than, than, than red light district sins. I'm, I'm fairly convinced of that. And that's why, and you guys know this, the worst sinners, worst sinners, are often the greatest candidates for grace. Because they know they have more than just a few blemishes and pockmarks on their record, right? And that is why you will see the gospel historically move more among, say, prison populations than, than professor populations. Argument from logic, number two, an argument from scripture. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He is quoting from Hosea chapter six, the first part of verse six. 
Now, as he says this, as he quotes Hosea, here's what he's not doing. He's not throwing out the Old Testament law, the moral law to be sure. He's not dissing on the Old Testament sacrificial system. He's making the point that Hosea was making all those years ago. Namely, mercy is more important than dead adherence to religious ritual. Mercy is more important than dead adherence to religious ritual. In fact, the whole point, right, of the Old Testament law and the sacrificial system was to drive people to what? To the mercy of God, right? And once you receive that mercy, now you are to extend that mercy horizontally, and they were not because they had never even really received it. It's like Jesus is saying, you're mad because I'm hanging out with people who need mercy? Go and learn because you need mercy too. And if you can't extend mercy, by the way, it may be because you're a stranger to God's mercy. Number three, the argument from authority. Last part of verse 13, he says, for, for I, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. You remember how many times Jesus said, you have heard it said, but I say to you? Jesus was showing his authority as being God incarnate, Yahweh in human flesh. And he, he's, not, he's not saying, you know, I came to call to repentance. No, I, I, let me repeat that. It's not like he's saying, I came to call those who merit my blessing by their obedience. He's not saying that. I came to call those who nailed it last week with all spiritual A's on the report card. No, he's saying, I came not to call the righteous but sinners. And I think there's a bit of appeal in this to the Pharisees, don't you? He's saying, listen, I came to, to, to extend mercy and you need it too. And I would say that what is being expressed in these responses is the love of Christ that compelled the gospel of grace. The love of Christ that compels the gospel of grace. And I'm gonna end here, but I'm gonna take a few minutes on some serious application. Sean O'Donnell, in his commentary, has a very helpful piece on this concept of the love of Christ compelling the gospel of grace as reflected in this passage. And he talks about the need for us to have both accepting love and transforming love. Will you guys say that with me? Accepting love and transforming love. And this is where we get into some very helpful practical, uh, practical application. He notes that we all here choose a friendship, a relationship, whether your spouse, if you're married, or just a friend in your friend group. You choose friends based on things you don't like or things you like? <laughs> what do you think? Based on admirable qualities, right? Things you like about that person is what causes you to want to be in relationship with them or married to them. But reality sets in. And as you begin to walk with that person, you discover, surprise, surprise, no surprise, no surprise, that they might have a flaw or two. But optimally, you continue to walk with them as they continue to walk with you. And that's where we need both accepting love and transforming love, both of which Jesus demonstrates and both of which we're called to reflect as well. So here's the quote from him. Accepting love 
without transforming love slides into indulgence and finally even neglect. It doesn't care about the potential of the beloved or of the friend of what he or she could be, just accepting love alone. Transforming love without accepting love badgers and finally rejects. It analyzes and it judges as if it is fixated on what the friend or beloved is not. True love accepts the friend, especially, I would say, beloved, as he or she is. Now, are you with me so far? Because there's a second half of this quote. Every church is given some problem, just as every parent is given some problem. (laughs) Or uh, spouse is given a problem. I'm laughing because he says perhaps it's physical like snoring. (laughs) Um, Or perhaps a moral or emotional flaw in your spouse. As we encounter these flaws, we learn more of the love of Jesus Just as Jesus loves us and accepts us as we are, so we must first treasure our spouse, our friend, our child, our church as they are. Transforming love then recognizes the weaknesses and says, I want you to improve so you can flourish, so you can be the best version of yourself. But hold on. Accepting love says, I will still love you even if you never improve a whole lot. This is the way of Jesus. And by this we embrace the gospel in all of life. The Pharisees did not grasp this at all. Their mindset was religious script. If you transform yourself, then we will love you. So I should ask myself, you should ask yourself, we should ask ourselves, do I love like a Pharisee or do I truly love? Do I, in God's kindness, have this grace-woven duo of accepting love and transforming love? This is the word of God. Music team can come. I summarize. Jesus calls sinners. The fact that he called us should astound us, right? Should amaze us. Should put logs on the fireplace of our heart to sing his praises because he took us in different people and made us delighters in the living triune God. And Jesus calls sinners the grace of the gospel that Jesus saves us and changes us and receives us and loves us should compel us to love like him and not like the Pharisees. Jesus calls sinners. Do you you need to respond to Christ? If you recognize that, that's because you might be hearing a divine call under that general call. I don't know what that means. All I'm saying is if you want to respond, it's because God's doing something so cool in your heart, and I would be so scared of that going away, I would just collapse at the cross right now. Just right now. Because the Bible says this man receives sinners. Don't hang your soul state with God on a dead prayer in the past. But really, walk, follow, leave stuff to go with the Savior and seek to bring your friends to him. Again, if you need to receive Christ, Pastor Charles is gonna be in the back and he will counsel you from God's word. Or maybe you would say, you know what? 
I, I've, I've been a bit, little bit transactional in my love, and I need to wrestle with this accepting love and transforming love thing. And God just has landed on me, listen, Jesus loves you even when you are not loving like him, right? That's the good news of the gospel. And as I hit your heart afresh, you're like, I want to be the husband I should be. I want to be the, the wife I should be. I want to be the single. I want to be the father, the mother, the child, all that, right? Because remember, as I said in the very beginning, it's the gospel that motivates us to live the life that Christ wants us to live. Amen. Let's sing.